welcome to episode four of our chapel podcast series, Fruit of the Spirit. This week's fruit is peace, brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. What do we mean when we say that? May you be stress-free. May all of your relationships be conflict and worry-free. May Australia continue to enjoy peace and not be at war with other countries. Peace be with you. What do we mean exactly? Peace, as you know, is quite a common word in the Bible and in Christian life. The, uh, the main Hebrew word is shalom, which has made its way into everyday English usage. The main Greek word would be erene, which has not. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Hebrew vision of shalom saturates the entire Old Testament. I mean, you can look for the word peace, you do a search for shalom, but you would only be touching the surface of what the Bible has to say about peace. It's in the prophets, it's in the poetry, it's right through the narratives. It undergirds everything. And look, my Greek is pretty rusty, and Greek's not as interesting as Hebrew. So let's explore shalom, shall we, today? Do I hear an amen, John? Amen. <laughs> shalom is the, is the wholeness of something that's quite complex. All the different parts being in the right place. It's used in the Bible to describe a wall, which can be shalom. And of course, it can be used to describe a person or a community being shalom. Shalom in its verbal form means to make whole or to make something complete. So here are some images of things that are not shalom. A broken window, a jigsaw puzzle that is not yet finished, a donut with a bite out of it. I'm describing these for anyone listening on the podcast. <laughs> An incomplete house. These are not shalom because shalom is the presence, the presence of wholeness. It's about the totality of things, everything in a complex whole, in its right place, in right relationships with everything else. And you could say that a person experiences shalom when all the different aspects of ourselves are being held in balance. When we are not being driven by psychological urges that we don't ourselves fully understand. Anyone ever felt that? I see some quiet nodding going on. When we are physically fit and healthy. When we are emotionally aware and able to express those emotions in ways that are appropriate. When we are sexually pure in whatever way is right for our particular context. And when we have spiritual disciplines in our lives. All these different things, parts of a complex whole, working in harmony. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to intimidate, but this does look quite difficult, doesn't it? To maintain shalom. We are complex. And today I want to explore Shalom briefly by looking at two narrative snapshots of an individual in the Old Testament. Now this is admittedly 
a slightly different take on this book uh, and may not be something that you've seen or heard before. But as some of you will know, I have a real passion for the book of Job. I love Job. And it doesn't matter how much time I spend in the book of Job, I continue to find new, rich resources for understanding God and for understanding life. Plus, if Rachel can preach on joy from Jeremiah, <laughs> I'm going to try to preach on peace from Job. Now, we don't have time to look at everything, of course, 42 chapters, but I'm going to assume that you know the basics. Job has a hard time, right? Things get pretty rough for him. And the basics about the book, we're just going to look at two narrative snapshots from the bookends, which are the two little narrative portions of the book. And what I want to try and show you is that Job is presented as being more whole, more at peace at the end of the book than he was at the beginning. So, let's read these first three verses together. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Now, the word shalom is not used in either of these bookends, but that doesn't matter. As I said earlier, the vision of wholeness or shalom undergirds the entire Old Testament. It's what human life ideally looks like. And if there's anyone who's sort of presented as a bit of an ideal human, it's Job. But in this first snapshot, the word gadol is used. Job is more gadol than anyone else. Any Hebrew students here to help us out? Gadol? Great. Great answer. That was very gadol. Gadol is a flexible word. It means big or great, and it can mean great morally. Tick. Great financially. Tick. It could mean physically large in height or width. Perhaps Job is an Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament woman of Samaria. <laughs> Not the response I would <laughs> Some of you will get that when you have lunch. The point is, Job stands out because he has everything, right? And at this point, before disaster strikes, he seems at peace. He is at shalom. His whole life seems pretty together. It is presented on the surface as being such. Seven sons and three daughters? Oof. Most of us would say that's a bit of a nightmare. But in the ancient world, that's an ideal family. And yes, he's fabulously wealthy. He's got a house, holiday house up at Noosa. He's got a yacht, the works. And his morals, pristine. He turns away from evil, from anything bad, at any, in fact, every opportunity. This guy has his shizzle together. Don't shake your head. <laughs> that is uh, a, a modern way of putting shalom. But let's focus on his behaviour. Because behaviour is what shows up someone's true colours, right? A person might be described as righteous or brave or generous. But to quote Jane Austen from Sense and Sensibility, thank you for this quote, Helen. This was on our Instagram page uh, last week when we were introducing Helen, and she said, 
this quote is one that uh, is meaningful to her, and I think it's spot on in this context. It isn't what we say or think that defines us, but what we do. Now, the way that the Old Testament fleshes out this reality is through 40% of the Old Testament being narrative, talking about lived experience. And in other words, we're a storied people, right? And we understand ourselves by the stories we tell and the stories we're a part of. And the Old Testament reflects that truth by depicting characters through their words and actions. The New Testament does too, in its narrative portion, for sure. In carefully told narratives. So let's look at, take a look at verses 4 and 5 at what Job does. Oh, that's still 1 to 3. Uh, let me just grab one. Job 1, 4, and 5. His sons used to go out and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. This is his habit. Now, Job's piety in these two verses has been described by one commentator, probably one of the main authorities on Job, as neurotically anxious behaviours. <laughs> I think that's fair. That's David Klein. This is what Job always did. So we break it down. On surface level, it seems like a kind of a positive thing. Job's very first words each day express a fatherly concern for his kids. The things that his kids might have muttered were now under the influence, if you will, of these parties. Job is presented as someone who's always thinking of his family. However, the logic of Job's behaviour implies that he holds a fairly mechanical view of God. He thinks, perhaps my children have sinned, and on that basis he offers a sacrifice on their behalf. The rationale, or the theologic, in Job's mind is quite clear. If he's not dutiful in securing forgiveness for them through burnt offerings, something bad might happen to them. Job's actions or transactions say a great deal about his beliefs. Sin and you will suffer. Make amends and you'll be okay, at least till the next wild party. You get what you deserve unless you can stay God's judgment. And that, my friends, is snapshot A. Now with all that in mind, let's jump to the end of the book. And look at the snapshot B. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right. Ask me at lunch about that translation. It's the correct one. <laughs> Barely any translations reflect it, but it is just grammatically correct. You've not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. My servant Job will pray for you, and I'll accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you've not spoken of me what is right to me, as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, very small man, 
And Zophar, the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. They ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. In a nutshell, what do we have here? Well, Job is affirmed for speaking rightly to God. The friends, however, have not spoken rightly. So God instructs Eliphaz, his group of friends, take their sacrificial animals to Job because God will accept Job's prayers for mercy. It's interesting, isn't it? Job is being asked to do what he was doing in the opening verses, to pray and offer sacrifices so that God will not deal with these guys according to their foolishness or wickedness. Same thing. Uh, same Hebrew word can mean both. But in this time, it's, it's not Job's initiative, it's not Job's habit, it's God's request, it's on God's terms. And when the prayers and sacrifices are offered, God accepts them, Job is restored, he's surrounded by loved ones. As it says, all his brothers and sisters, and all who'd known him before, ate bread with him in his house. Big party. Big party. All who had known him before. Again, it reflects the opening scene, doesn't it? These folks comfort Job for what he's been through and they give him gifts. And that, my friends, is snapshot B. So, it's time to play Spot the Difference. Some of you who've taken an Old Testament class with me will have heard me say that narratives are inviting us to play Spot the Difference when they compare two characters or when two scenes are juxtaposed, or um, two situations are narrated with some similar language that makes you look back and say, okay, there's some similarities. What are the differences? And this is especially true when you read a phrase like, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. I mean, it's an invitation to play the game. So let's play. Uh, what do people normally see? when we compare the opening chapter to the later chapter. They see this. Job 1, 7,000 sheep. Job 42, 14,000. Yes, they're all doubled. No need to go through that, because as you'll know from class, this is a general observation, and it will get you a pass. Well done. But if you want a credit, and who doesn't want a credit, then we're going to push a little bit further, a little bit deeper. Because these numerical details are just a warm-up. Um, they're surface level, and they're a clue, I think, suggesting that we can look for more. So let's place spot the difference on another level. What else do we find? Well, in Job 1, Job's burnt offerings and prayers are transactional. Yeah? Self-centered. He wants forgiveness for his own kids. Keep things at peace. At the end of the book, they're offered for nothing. There is nothing to gain. They're a gift of grace to Job's so-called friends who have pestered, humiliated, accused him right through the book. Job's motivation is different. In the opening scene, Job's behaviour was driven by ritual and routine. This was what Job always did. At the end, Job is responding to God's request. 
a compassionate God calls the shots. That's different. In Job 1, Job is alone. He's doing this on his own. At the end, he's surrounded by friends and family, restored relationships. And the feasting motif is in the text. But in the prologue, feasting and eating suggests excess and the threat of sin. At the end of the book, it represents restoration, joy, belonging. There's other things we could say, but the final verse, the whole book, contains the verb salvar, which means filled to satisfaction. Full and plentiful. Job is literally full of days. His life is quite literally complete. So why is Job's shalom greater at the end of the book than at the beginning? Ah, a why question. Now that's a question that will push us to a distinction, right? We're looking not just at what we've noticed. We haven't just pushed a little deeper with that, but we're asking, we're evaluating. Hmm, ACT would be proud. The why questions. Why is Job's shalom greater at the end of the book. Well, what happens between bookends? In two words, Job suffers. He loses financial security. He loses key relationships. Looks familiar. His integrity is called into question. His community reject him. That's actually at the heart of his crying against God. And he feels abandoned by God. Now how on earth, in what world, is all that stuff helping someone to be at peace or at shalom? How does that increase one's peace? Well, all of that stuff actually happens pretty quickly in a single chapter, doesn't it? But it's not the focus of the book. The 40 chapters that follow are prayers to God, and conversations about God. Tough prayers, tough conversations. So how does Job get from snapshot A to snapshot B? The answer is with great difficulty. But Job's sustained focus is on God throughout. He doesn't stop praying. One of the most interesting insights I think about the book of Job is that Job's the only one who actually talks to God. He's the only one who talks to God in the second person 115 times. Guess how many times the friends say a prayer or talk to God? Big fat zero. And what does God say at the end of the book? He gets the friends together and he says, you have not spoken rightly to me as my servant Job has. He says it twice in the space of two verses. So you take note when that sort of thing happens. And this, my friends, is the path to Shalom. Pray. When things are good, pray. When things are uncertain, pray. When things are terrible, and I mean terrible, pray. And I can tell you from personal experience, this is true. It's not just something I found in Scripture. It resonates And I'm sure for some of you too, you're thinking, yeah, I get that. I've experienced that. So let us pray.
Lord, we are fragmented selves. We section off emotions. We section off bad habits. We try to put grudges and resentment in a box. We think that by doing this we can turn away from badness as Job did. But often we are simply hiding our sin, ignoring our sin, or even altogether blind to it. So we ask today that by your grace, as we push through difficulty and challenges in our studies, our relationships, our work and family life, that you would be making us whole. Stamp out the sin in our lives and cleanse us with your forgiveness. Lord God, we pray that you'll bring us to completion for your glory and not our own. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.